0: just a brief word about that song. That, I got a friend, I know that's shocking, I, I got a friend that um, we went to seminary together, and this morning, right now, he's at North Roanoke Baptist Church in Virginia, and he's he's a real smart guy, and he, he writes a lot, and Every time he writes something, when he talks about what the church is doing, ministry of the church, or what you know, what he's doing individually, going on a mission trip or, or whatever he's doing, he always ends what he writes with four words. It kinda kinda stuck with me because what it meant to me. He he whatever he's gonna write, doesn't matter. He he write it, say, you know, we did had this event at the church or we had this going on in the city and all that. And then at the end he puts this Roanoke belongs to Jesus. And, And so think about that for a minute. Doesn't matter where you are, no matter who you're talking to, no matter what you're doing in ministry, fill in the blank. Wagner belongs to Jesus. Sally belongs to Jesus. Perry belongs to Jesus. Aiken County belongs to Jesus. Think, if, you think, if we think in those terms, everything we're doing, we've got to think with the, the end in mind, we've got to think, why, why are we doing this, or why are we doing this, or why, why do we want to try this? or It's because this community belongs to Jesus. You hear the, hear the words of the song. You're the God of these people, this place, this nation. Uh, the last, the last phrase of the second part of that the verse says, "You're the peace to the restless." Man, it just, I, you know, the first time I heard this song, I won't bore you with the details. First time I heard this song, it was dark. It was Two thousand and ten, I was in a van. I was the only person that whose first language was English. I was on the side of a mountain in Peru, a driver and a, an interpreter, and me. And we were going to from one village to another to meet with some brand new Christians to try to help them and, and teach them more about the Bible. And the driver who is a believer. And he's got his phone hooked up to his stereo in the van. I mean, this is like, I mean, I'm talking about single lane, side of a mountain, switchback road, 12,000 feet in the Andes Mountains. And it's, Late at night, and we're, and, and this song comes on. You're the God of this city. I, I mean, I didn't know what. It was heavy in that man. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know how to act. Just to think, I, I'm, I'm. How far am I from South Carolina? And I'm going to talk to people who don't understand me. Got to have somebody interpret. But, man, he's God of that city, too. He's God of that village up in the middle of nothing. And, man, it was just, it was a moment. And so ever since then, that, this song has, has really meant a lot to me. Because it reminds me that we're not doing this because we're able to do it. We, we, everything we do is doing because God's in charge of this. He's the God of this city. And, and we owe it to him and to ourselves to do what he says to do and, and do it the best we can. So that kind of feeds into where we are today. Today we're going to begin a study through, in the month of March through the prophecy of Joel. And this is the second of the 12 minor prophets in your Old Testament. It's right after Hosea, book of Joel, And as as we go through this today, I want to kind of set the the scene with an, an event that happened in history about 250 years ago. It was November the 1st, 1755, in Lisbon, Portugal. Now, if you're a history buff, I don't know, you might recognize that. That city, November 1st, 1755, one of the worst earthquakes in recent history, happened in that city. And let me just give you some of the stats about what happened that day. The epicenter of the earthquake was several miles uh, off the coast of the Atlantic, and it started at 940 in the morning. And it lasted for six minutes. Now, in ter- six minutes doesn't sound that long, but in terms of an earthquake with the whole, everything around you just going crazy, six minutes is an eternity. In the city of Lisbon, Portugal, every public building, without exception, every public building was completely leveled. 12,000 homes completely demolished. There was people, there was, a, you know, t- earthquakes caused tidal waves. And so that happened. So if you count the people who died in, uh, as a result of tidal waves and the, the fire, it started, fire you know, because gas lines and power lines, everything ruptures. Fire raged in the city for six days. 60,000 people died. 60,000 people died. There was damage uh, south of Portugal, in Morocco, to the east, 700 miles away to the east, in Algiers. 700 miles damage. There's a little island called Martinique, 3,700 miles away. Ten hours after the earthquake hit, the waves that hit the island of Martinique were 12 feet higher than normal, 3,700 miles away. So naturally, when something this horrific happens, what's our, what's our inclination? What's our, our uh, instinct to say, well, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And here's what philosophers were doing, people in town. Why would, why would this happen? If, if, if there is a God, why would he allow something like this to happen? Because people, you know, there was a lot of optimistic thought for this creator that was all wise and all good and benevolent to his people. Well, all of a sudden, they're not so sure anymore because this was a tremendous, I mean, this was a, 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 a disaster of a biblical proportion, 60,000 people die in a day. And so here, here's how the thought process went. How could a good God allow such an evil thing to happen? And so when you ask that question, here's what happens after you ask that question. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. When you ask that question, here's, here's the, the premise that you're saying. If God really is good then he must not have been powerful enough to stop it. If God is powerful enough, then he must not be good. That's what people were saying. Because when something that devastating happens, it could cause people to have a, a crisis of belief, have some, their, their faith is shaken a little bit. And to make things worse, to make the the drama even worse, you you know what November 1st is, is referred to commonly as All Saints Day. It's the day after Reformation Day, October 31st. And then November 1st is commonly called All Saints Day. You know what that means? That means that the day and time that this earthquake happened, that means churches were filled with people. Churches were also leveled. Everybody in them died. So that adds to this thought. Well, is God really good? Is he really powerful? Is is he real? People start to question. So the question comes to us even all these years later when something like that happens. How do we explain the problem of evil in light of the word of God? And that's the question we're going to hopefully address today and over the next several weeks from this prophecy. How do we understand in light of who God is, if we, if we believe that God, the God who reveals himself to us in this word, if we believe he's real and he is exactly as he says he is and who he reveals himself to be, then how do we make sense of things like that? It's a question I, I suspect all of us have had at some point in our lives, maybe more than once. So let's read this text. We're going to actually look at the, all of chapter 1 today, 20 verses, but it's, it's in a more of a, the, the form of literature is a little different, so it's not like studying one of Paul's letters or something like that. So we'll be able to take these 20 verses, and it breaks up into two major portions, and uh, we'll be able to talk about it here briefly and hopefully see what God has to teach us ...going forward through this word. Joel chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation... What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion. And it's, it has the fangs of a lioness. It's made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up, the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before your eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field long for you. For the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. That you would take this word, make it clear to us, speak to us, help us understand. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. This prophecy, as many of these in the Old Testament, there's a lot of figurative language that describe literal things. Um, The prophets were were given a lot of words that helped paint pictures for us to help us understand the truth of what God was trying to tell his people because here's what has happened, the setting of what has happened. As you could probably uh, deduce from hearing verse 4, a great invasion of locusts. Anybody ever seen a locust? It's a, it's a terrible-looking little little thing. I mean, I, I looked at a picture of one, and I was, it was, it's terrible. And the destruction that they can cause. Well, imagine looking up in the sky, and you can't even see the sky for the swarm of locusts covered up. That's, that's what has happened. So we're looking at a time before Christ was born in human form. Uh, there's all kind of um, discussion or debate about when this was written, there's several uh good cases that are made, but here's the bottom line there's no certainty about exactly when it was written based on what was written, but the good thing is when it was written does not take away one bit from the truth of what is written. so we can take what we have an idea, a time frame roughly like uh that between the eighth and the fifth or fourth or fifth century b c somewhere in those those times. So, that would put Joel either uh, roughly contemporary with with uh, maybe younger than Jeremiah or around the time of Haggai or Zechariah of the of the prophets. But the the bottom line is that regardless of when he wrote, Joel had witnessed a devastating invasion of the land of Judah, the southern kingdom by these locusts. And he recognized that it was not some uh, random occurrence. We've got to start out with this truth about what Joel's writing about. God sent this. It, it was God's warning of future judgment. This is, this is a, an act of God that came upon the land of Judah for a particular purpose. It's not random. It's not random. It wasn't uh, by accident, and it wasn't by chance. Because I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe the Bible teaches it. Because God's in control. My God's in control. There's There's no chance happenings. You know what the name Joel means? This is so instructive for us. It means Yahweh is God. What his name means. So there's two major divisions of this first chapter. The first 14 verses is a is a very vivid description and a call. It's a it's a, it's a I have, if I had to call it something, the first 14 verses, God is calling us to repent. Plain and simple, God is calling us to repent. The Bible mentions locusts coming and. Uh, just destroying everything well oddly enough about a hundred years ago about 1915 there was an invasion of locusts that reminded many people of joel's prophecy it happened in palestine and syria two very strategic biblical cities from all the way from the border of Egypt to the Taurus Mountains in Palestine and Syria. And there was a man that wrote an article about it, in, believe it or not, the 1915 December issue of National Geographic magazine. This guy wrote an article about this event, and he said the locusts, here's what he said, they stripped every leaf, berry, and even the tender bark. They ate away layer after layer, giving the leaves the effect of being jack-planed. That's how he described it. It was complete destruction, vegetation, just complete destruction. And we we look at this, we look at Joel's prophecy and this description of what he says, and, and try to compare it maybe to this event a hundred years ago over in the Middle East. And you know, we we marvel at how this writer could have given so graphic. And true a description of this devastation in such a short form. But, but that's because these words are not just something he thought up. This was given to him by God. This, this is the word of God to us. So here's the thing, though. The most remarkable thing about this prophecy, it's not that he describes it so accurately. The remarkable thing is how Joel deals with it. What's the response of this prophet? Who's, what's a prophet's job? I'm, I'm hearing the word from God and I'm giving it to God's people. I'm passing on the truth of God for the benefit and the instruction of God's people. That's what this is to us it's instruction. So God calls us to repent. Look at how He does this. He identifies several groups of people specifically telling us to mourn, and not just to mourn like someone's passed away, mourn our sin. So, as saddened and as heartbroken as we would be when those closest to us pass away, that's the type of feeling we should have toward the fact that we've sinned and rebelled against God. So, so get that emotional picture in your mind. We should be saddened and heartbroken over sin. Over sin. He calls, first of all, he calls the elders to mourn. Nothing like this has ever happened. Verse 2 says, Hear this, O elders, and listen, inhabitants of the land. Nothing like this has ever happened before. It's something that needs to be passed down from generation to generation. So he says, uh, has anything like this happened? Tell your sons. Let your sons tell their sons, and then the next generation. So don't let anybody forget what happened, because this is a major event, and it's important. It's instructive to us. So it's something that needs to be passed on. And here's what's interesting about verse 4. <coughs> Excuse me. Locusts have devoured everything. But, but get what he's describing. A locust, I, I studied this, read this, and didn't know this before. Uh, apparently, a locust has four stages of the life cycle. So when the eggs are hatched, they come out a certain way. And so Joel is describing. Yeah, and this molting takes place, and they go from one stage to the next. So he's describing the four stages of the locust, the life cycle. So the gnawing locust, that's when they're first starting out. And so whatever they can get 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 to in that stage, they haven't fully developed yet, so they're just gnawing on everything. Well, then they did what they could do until the next, next part of the life cycle occurred, and then now all of a sudden they're swarming because they, I guess they grow their wings. And so now what they can devour as, as that stage of development. They eat everything in sight. And then when the next stage happens, now they're called the creeping. So now they're moving around a little more mobile, and so they're devouring everything. And then the final stage, the stripping locust. So you have four different stages of complete destruction. And each one, each stage of the life cycle, they do the maximum damage they can do until they change into the next stage and then that stage does the maximum amount of damage and so on to the point is verse 4 is describing the fact that every single stage of the life cycle basically they, they did the maximum amount of harm they could do total destruction and they continue the damage it's like it's almost like a relay race it's interesting that there's four of them you know the four by 400 let's pass the baton well they did and each one ran a a very strong part of that race because the the result is that people look out and everything's gone. Everything's gone. So he starts out telling the elders, the leaders, you need to repent, you need to mourn. Then he goes on to the drunkards. Now why would he call on drunkards to mourn? Well, they're going to be mourning because there's nothing else to drink. All the vines have been destroyed. There is no more wine. There is no more fruit to make the wine. Everything is destroyed. So he says, the wine's cut off from their mouth, he says. The vines that grow the grapes for the wine have been destroyed. The fig trees have been destroyed. The grain has been devoured. So there's nothing left. All the ingredients is gone. So elders are mourning. The drunkards are mourning. Then the farmers. The farmers are mourning. Can you imagine? Some of you may not have to imagine. You may have experienced this or witnessed this. Can you imagine an entire harvest completely destroyed? Your entire crop completely ruined? Everything you worked so hard to produce, and it's all gone. Every bit, nothing left. The wheat. The barley has been destroyed. The harvest of the field has been lost. He mentions trees, fig trees, pomegranate trees, palm trees, apple trees, all of them dried up, gone. And after these first three groups, he finally gets to the priest. What's the job of the priest? The priests are supposed to mourn as well. They're supposed to be uh, repentant for sin, but they're also supposed to lead the nation in mourning. See, the priests have a different responsibility. They're supposed to mourn themselves, but they're also supposed to lead other people who may have missed the boat and not heard the instruction. They're supposed to lead the nation in mourning. So that means that we come together as a people and all of us are in mourning over our sin, the sin of us individually and the sin of our nation, the land of Judah. It's no coincidence like i said before i don't believe in coincidence it's no coincidence that the very first two groups identified by jesus when he teaches his longest sermon the sermon on the mount when you go to matthew chapter 5 and you see the beatitudes when he says blessed is this group and blessed is this group here's what he says in matthew 5 verse 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven why are they poor in spirit because they recognize Their spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. Uh, My spirit's poor because I'm a sinner. You know what the very next verse says? Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Joel is prophetically calling on God's people to mourn. Mourn their sin. Mourn their condition before God. Mourn the fact that they have been disobedient. They've rebelled against God. That should cause heartbreak and mourning to the, to the Christian. If, if we're if our whole purpose in life is to live for God and we don't do a very good job at that that ought to make us feel a certain way. We ought to be sad. We ought to be heartbroken. We ought to be mourning that. To the point that it would cause us to, to change, to change behavior. So he calls us to, he even uses the, the phrase, the wording of mourning. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Lament, O priest. Spend the night in sackcloth, ministers of my God. The offerings that we're supposed to offer, verse 13 says, from the grain offering, the drink offering, they're withheld. You know why they're withheld? Because there's nothing to offer. Everything's been destroyed. This locust invasion is a massive warning. This isn't even the judgment that's coming. This is, a, this is a preliminary judgment. This is to get the people's attention. It's designed to say, hey, you better wake up and take note because you think this is bad? Something far, far worse is coming And if you don't repent, then you're going to perish. You're you're not just going to suffer some inconvenience. You're going to perish. It's a warning from God. So verse 14, the prophet says, through the Spirit of God, consecrate a fast. You know what? That's a signal of humility. Humility. I'm going to focus now. I'm going to deny myself something I need to live. You need food to live. But I'm going to consecrate a fast because I I don't want anything distracting me, getting in my way from drawing close to God. Proclaim a solemn assembly. That means gather the people and and I'm going to pick on myself here. Because I do this all the time and and I I need to not do it. You know, a lot of my conversation before we get started, a lot of my conversation, like out here, outside, in the hallway, you know what it is? It's superficial nonsense. Hey, how's how's the weather? You see that ball game last night? Now, are those things bad? Well, of course not. Of course not. But I'm not focused. When I when I pull up here, I'm I'm not dialed in yet. So I'm talking about inconsequential things. It is not a solemn assembly. Because there's other things going through my mind, you know, not necessarily just spiritual things. In this, you know, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm still, maybe I'm still a little naive. Maybe I'm still got a little idealism. But you know, I mean, I just feel like, you know, what would be really neat is if we're in the hallway and when we pass and and we talk, maybe it's not, do you see the game or what? Well, is it going to rain today? Maybe it's. Hey, how are you doing with this? Can I pray for you? What's going on in your life today? What's the best way I can be praying for you this week? Because I, I mean, I need some prayer. And can I can I offer that to you? Can I you know, can are we hey, how'd you what'd God tell you this week when you were reading scripture? How did how did he speak to you this week? How did he work in your life this week? You know, because then my mind's focused on spiritual things and not distracted by things that are not necessarily bad, but they're just not, not of utmost importance. So, consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land. And what are we supposed to do? The last phrase of verse 14, cry out to the Lord. And not, not, he's not talking about just praying. not talking about casual conversation. This is me. I'm on my knees. I'm, I'm humbled. I'm crying out to the Lord. Because, remember, we're supposed to be mourning. We're supposed to be saddened over our sin. So I'm, I'm crying out to God. I, I need you. I need help. I, I, I want to turn away from this thing that's got got me sidetracked, and I'm having trouble because I can't do it by myself. I need, I need help. I need divine help. Y'all all right? Everybody okay today? You hear what I'm saying? Because I'm not the only one that has struggles that need divine help. We need, we need God's Spirit to just get a hold of us consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, cry out to the Lord. God is calling us to repent. And why is he doing that? Why would God call his people as a whole to repent? And why would he do it after he sent some devastating act like this? A devastation of locusts. Something that has completely destroyed the land and made a huge impact on the entire nation and here's why. Verse 15. God is warning us of things to come. So it's not just a, an arbitrary, random, hey, by the way, you need to repent. It's repent because this that has just happened is not the ultimate judgment. This is, this is a step along the path. The judgment that's coming is eternal and, and far-reaching and far worse than this, So we get to verse 15. He says, now he's talking about the day of the Lord. He says, alas for the day. The day of the Lord is near. And it will come as destruction from the Almighty. See, Joel's acknowledging the source of judgment. It's not bad things happen to good people. That, that's nonsense. And, and forgive me if that catches you off guard. Bad things do not happen to good people. You know how I know that? There are no good people. Did you hear me? There are no good people. There are bad people in Jesus. Bad things don't happen to good people. That's a quaint thing to say in our culture, but it's not true. It's a lie from the, from the, from the pits of hell. It's something to make us feel better because here's what happens. If I'm good, then maybe I don't need Jesus. I'm good compared to that guy over there especially, yeah. I'm good. I don't need supernatural help because I've got this handled. That's a lie. That's a terrible lie. None of us is good. The day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So what does that look like? Food has been cut off. Not just food. There's no, there's no gladness. There's no joy in the house of our God. Where are we right now? We're in the house of our God. Is there joy? Is there gladness? And if there is, is it enough? Or, or are we looking for it? When you, when you come in here to gather with God's people for the purpose of worshiping the God of the universe who has created you and given you everything you have, life, breath, eternal salvation, forgiveness, is there joy? Is there sufficient gladness? Do we even recognize all God has done for us? I mean, do we even scratch the surface to where we're thankful enough? For what God has done. And what he continues to do every day. I I don't know. I don't know there is. And I'm not. This is not an indictment on anybody. Sitting out here. I'm just. I'm looking in the mirror. Is there enough joy. Even. Even close. Joy and gladness. Joel says. uh, The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down because there's nothing to put in them. There's no pasture for the cattle or the sheep. And here's an important piece to this puzzle. Observe how Joel deals with the suffering that has been caused by the locust. And this is, to me, this is just funny. And not funny, like, you know, hilarious, but interesting. When you go to the dentist, you know what the dentist says to you? This is going to cause you some discomfort. Okay. You want me to translate that for you? This is going to hurt. It's going to hurt. I'm going to inflict pain on you. Okay. It's not discomfort. Discomfort is my shoe's a little too tight. Or, you know, I need to readjust in my recliner. That's discomfort. When the dentist says that, it's going to be painful. Okay. So... God sent these locusts as a warning. It's a warning of future judgment so the people might learn a lesson. And here's one thing that I read about this passage that's really interesting. This one commentator says, our problem is that we have forgotten how sinful we are. We have forgotten. It generally takes a disaster of unparalleled proportions to wake us from sin's lethargy. You know how I know that's true? And not just this guy's opinion? We, I think we've discussed this example once or twice before in the last few years. Tuesday morning, about 8:45, back in September of 2001, it was a Tuesday morning. Two planes hit World Trade Center towers. One plane hit the Pentagon. One plane that was intended for another target hit a field in Pennsylvania. That was a Tuesday. Sunday, September the 16th, you couldn't get in a church parking lot. They were so full. Every church. Beyond capacity. Sunday, September 23rd, back to normal. It took all of a week. Now, listen to what I'm saying. It took all of one week to forget almost that four planes had just hit buildings and things in, in this country. A week. From Tuesday to Sunday, people were all looking to heaven. People that never looked toward God in their lives were looking for a church to go to on September the 16th. But September the 23rd, almost business as usual. How does that happen? How do we forget something so major so quickly? How do we forget a warning so obvious so quickly? And this, this, basic, this brings us to the bottom line. And, and honestly, this is, the, this is the point of this prophecy moving forward over the next several weeks. The point of Joel's prophecy. There's two things. The, the delay in God's judgment, which is a period of grace. And the previews of God's judgment in such things as this locust invasion or an earthquake. This is so hard to understand, and I I don't fully understand it. All these things are ultimately for our good when something devastating happens. It's meant for our good. You know why? Because it's a warning. It's not the end yet. It's a warning. God says, repent, or you will likewise perish. Repent. Mourn your sin. Come back to me. Get your your mind right. Get your heart right. This problem of evil is really difficult to understand and explain if you don't see it with spiritual eyes. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to sinful people. And sinful people only have one solution, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray.